Do you ever get a flash of a memory of a movie you saw as a child but can't remember the name? Perhaps you caught it on TV while staying up later than you should have. Or maybe you never saw it, but you recognize the cover art from the neighborhood video store around the block. At the Video Junkyard Podcast, we dig up these forgotten films and franchises and see if they still hold up in the digital age. You know, one person's trash is another's treasure, something like that. Each episode, hosts Eric Gilbranson and Joe Peterson discuss a number of films selected thematically. We'll be looking at the best, the worst, and the best of the worst at the Video Junkyard Podcast. You are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Happy listening. Hello, fellow time travelers. I'm Pearl Mackey, and you are listening to the Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast. Enjoy your travels. Travelers, and welcome back to the Doctor Who Target Book Club, the podcast in which we undertake the monstrous task of discussing in story order all the Doctor Who novelizations. My name is Tony Whit, and today we're doing something a little bit different. In our last episode, we had a special all-expert panel discuss the book in our reading queue, the next one in our reading queue, and now we're having our usual panel of novice and semi-novice Who fans discuss it, including our so-called expert who's been a Who fan since 1979, and that would be me. I imagine that our opinions may not be very different, even though hearing some of the pre-recording chatter, I have a feeling it's not going to be um, unanimous, which is fine. <laughs> we may end up looking at completely different parts of the book, and I, I know that's going to happen. So make sure to listen to both of them, because they're both wonderful. I just posted the first one today. The experts panel went up today. So, yeah. Hopefully we'll uh, see how this uh, experiment works out. Uh-huh. This time around, we have our usual panelists, the wise and witty Allison Fitch Seyfried. Hello, Allison. Hello. As well as the worthy Dalton Hughes. Hello, Dalton. Hello again. And finally, we welcome back, or rather, she welcomes us back since we're recording in her kitchen and eating her food. The lovely spread. The wonderful and glamorous Jenny Ingersoll. Hello, Jenny. Hey. And they're referring to the food, not to Jenny, when we said marvelous spread. So that. <laughs> Just wanted to make that clear, since we are, you know, an oral medium. Not an oral medium, but an oral medium. So the tone is set. We already started with with that. Indeed. And I I missed that during the experts panel, believe it or not. (laughs) Well, something else I missed was these next two paragraphs, because I didn't read them. Before we get to talking about the book, let's talk briefly about our Patreon page at patreon.com forward slash dwtargetbc. Depending on the amount you give per month, you will receive, among other possible goodies, a randomly chosen BBC book, not a Target book, since we know there are now so many of them that they make for perfect landfill material. As a gift for supporting us, just to say thank you for being willing to help us stay on the virtual air, and as usual, we'd like to thank our regular patrons, Bart Lammy, Rick Taylor, Toby Bengelsdorf, Jay Barry, and the Video Junkyard Podcast. Thank you very much. Have you got more? Thanks, y'all. We've got more. Oh, that's right. We've gotten two more. Uh (laughs) It's been a while. It's been a little while. It's been a while. As for targets being ubiquitous, if you are in the Chicago area and you hear this soon enough... Apparently some fan died or gave up on fandom or something because there's a huge amount of DVDs and novelizations and all that at the Half Price Books located on Tui Avenue hmm. in Niles, Illinois. Yeah, the last time we went they were still there, a lot of them. <clears throat> They're starting to go away quickly, so go get, bitches. Okay. 
because the DVDs are the DVDs are ridiculous. I didn't pick up any of them because they know what they've got. Wait, the, a person died. <laughs> maybe I don't know. I don't know why, but I it, have certainly was, donated my estate while still alive. Yes, so, to the brown elephant. Literally, so. all the DVDs were there. Almost all the novelizations were there. Most of those follow-up series were there. And unfortunately, Half Price Books knows what they've got because the special oh. edition DVD of Inferno is going for $75. Mm. Jeez. Mm. So it's like, okay, I think I'll see if I can find that online <clears throat> to download. We also <laughs> have our Goodreads discussion group where you, the listener, can discuss upcoming books and previous podcasts. You can find us there at tinyurl.com forward slash Y7KMASPR. In <laughs> fact, we expect you to. We continue now with yet another discussion of the second, third Doctor novelization, The Cave Monsters. Without further ado, here are some fast facts. Doctor Who the Cave Monsters, an active by Malcolm Hope, from the script Doctor Who and the Silurians, that aired from 13170 to 31470, published by Target Books in January 1974. As of this recording in March of 2019, this title is currently in print as a facsimile edition for BBC Books, 158 pages. As we discussed last time we were all together, except for Jenny. Um, season 7 of Doctor Who is a rarity in that it's the start of a brand new era of the show, with all the stories taking place on Earth. There are only four stories total in the whole season, one four-parter and three seven-parters, of which this is the first. And it's the first to use CSO, Color Separation Overlay, which the rest of the world knows as chroma key or blue screen projection. Mm. They couldn't do it before because they were doing black and white, black and obviously, white. and you can't oh. do chroma key in black and white. For obvious reasons. Yeah. And nod sagely. For those yeah. of us not in the know, what are the obvious reasons? The obvious reasons are you need a color screen to mm. key out the color so that you can drop a color mm. in. In black and white, you have to do some other things, such as the insets and such, like oh. they were doing back in 1922 with Metropolis. So, yeah, this is kind of a new technology for TV, and they were going to make the most of it. This story is also particularly notable because of who wrote it and the so-called monsters that he created. In fact, Dalton, I expect we'll get into the long-standing debate we have about what constitutes a monster in this one. <laughs> when Terence Dix helped come up with the idea that the Doctor would be exiled to Earth, he said that his good friend and mentor Malcolm Hulk, with whom he'd written the War Games, told him that he would now have only two types of plot to work with. Alien invasions or Earth-bound mad scientists. What? As it turned out, he was nearly right. But then, he also wrote this story specifically to try to prove himself wrong, and this creates a race that is still depicted, depicted, albeit very differently in Doctor Who to this day. They have returned to the new series, even though nowadays they look more like the Jem Hadar from DS9 than the creatures that you see on the cover here. Yeah, the third eye is... It's gone. Yeah. Yeah, they, they completely got rid of that. We've already talked about Malcolm Hulk just two episodes ago, so this time we'll focus a bit more on the race that is usually referred to as the Silurians. You probably notice two things immediately. The reptile men in the book are never referred to by that name except on the back cover, which I'll have Jenny read. At one point it's a password, I think, in the story. Indeed. The word only occurs once in the text, and it's a unit password as kind of a throwaway gag. There's one thing that all this teaches us about Malcolm Hulk, and that's he was willing to learn from his mistakes. In the original televised story, Doctor Who and the Silurians, and yes, it had the Doctor Who bit in the front... Which we'll get to in a minute. It actually appeared on screen as Doctor Who and the Silurians. Hmm. That was the name of the damn thing. The reptiles are named Silurians not only by Quinn, but by the Doctor himself. 
I don't think they adopt the name themselves this time around, but it's the productions. Um, they, it's enough to note that they will later, and they don't in the classic series at all. You will never hear that name. Thank God. Anyway, it was soon brought to the production team's attention that the Silurian period was in the Paleozoic era and was not an era in which dinosaurs walked the earth. Hmm. Big lizards had not evolved yeah. by then. Uh, he later tried to correct this when their aquatic cousins, the sea devils, yes, we'll get those next season, the sea devils, and they are called that by humans, not by themselves. When the sea devils show up a couple seasons later, the doctor has a line saying that they should have been called the Eocenes, which is the period in which modern mammalian life continued to develop, but the large reptiles were still long gone. As a result, that's wrong too. They're never called Silurians or Eocenes in either this book or the novel of the Sea Devils, which Hulk himself also wrote. I thought you were saying the Essenes, like the sect in the Judean desert around no. the year like 100 <laughs> I BC. I was talking about Judean sects. Well, I was, yeah, I was very, very confused. Why were you talking about Judean sects? S-E-C-T-S. Yes, I, I was trying very hard to do that. Eocenes, E-O-C-E-N-E-S. By the time both subspecies are appearing in the 1980s, of course, nobody seems to care about the naming. Mm-hmm. Not only are these the names used for them, they use these names to describe themselves, which is just criminal. As a result, Terrence Dix, when he novelizes that later book, will be the first author to use the word Silurian to refer to them. They crop up a few more times during the new adventures, by which time they're generally referred to, as I'll refer to them during this, as the Earth Reptiles. And Liz Shaw has fallen in love with one of them. Yeah, that's what the new adventures are like. <laughs> and she falls in love with that version of the Silurians and not the new series version where we have... Hmm. Yeah. Um, that would be a bit less shocking nowadays, of course, since their reintroduction during the Matt Smith era. They look far more humanoid than they do here on the cover. Yeah. And we even have a regularly appearing lesbian couple on the show, one half of which is an Earth reptile. Yep. So, yeah. We're an inclusive, yeah. you know, time now. Just in, in today's we've, modern world. Yeah, mm-hmm. We've come a long way. And so have they. Now, about that title, the... <laughs> yeah. It has to do with the way the show used to be produced. From way back in the Hartnell era, the actors and director scripts would include Doctor Who and, and then give the uh, episode title. In much the same way the books did until 1982. The original name of the story, in fact, would have been Doctor Who and the Monsters which would have played up the irony that the Earth reptiles are not the monsters in the story at all. But Hulk changed it to Silurians. When it was time for the episode to be broadcast, however, the title without the prefix was sent to the captioning department because the director, who would never go on to direct a Doctor Who again, filmed it that way and didn't realize that was the convention to take that off. So all seven episodes read Doctor Who and the Silurians. Which, of course, causes fanboys to cry in their sleep at night. Inconsistencies. Yes, I know. Oh, I can't in. Exactly. This got nudity, my God. <laughs> Needless to say, they quickly changed that practice to prevent the mistake from ever happening again. So. Just, just another heartless error in our human time. Of, Indeed. Mm-hmm. Of all the errors and atrocities, this was <laughs> truly the darkest. Truly a dark age. Okay. So, Jenny Ingersoll, I'd like you to read the back cover, if you would, directly into that thingy there. 
<laughs> this thingy. Yeah, well, oh, this thingy. Yeah. Is it a microphone? Is that what? what That's we're exactly using what this that for? thing is. Do I have yes. the intelligence of Liz Shaw? Yes, of is course you do. What, what's <laughs> happening? Let me go get you another coffee. Um, <laughs> all is not well at the Wenli Moore Underground Atomic Research Station. Colon. There are unaccountable losses of power output. Semicolon. Nervous breakdowns among the staff. Another incorrectly used semicolon. And then incorrectly used end dash. A death. Unit is called in, and the brigadier is soon joined by Doctor Who and Liz Shaw in a tense and exciting adventure with subterranean reptile men, Silurians, Silurians, and a 40-foot-high Tyrannosaurus Rex, which I have no idea how it fit in the cave that's not from the back cover, the biggest, most savage mammal which ever trod the earth. Which, of course, is also wrong. Trod Which had, had ever trod, trodden? Had ever trodden the earth, had, I think. Yes, something. You can tell we're English teachers, can't you? Yeah, we're... You, Semicolons are not used in a serial list. No, <laughs> not in American usage. Oh, really? Is this British usage? I think so. Oh, I say is that specifically American to have like the in on the end, like trodden? I believe so. I'm not really sure because I know we handle the comma splice differently. For one thing, we call it the comma splice. They call it and consider it a high crime. Comma. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we flay people to death for it, whereas they say, "Oh, lovely lad." Yeah. See, it's more complicated when you have the different uses of, of grammar. Yeah. Um, I'm thinking of like forgot versus forgotten that an American will usually say, I thought forgotten, but you're more likely to hear forgot in British usage. Or, mm-hmm. I thought I had forgot instead of I forgot. I yeah, I thought forgotten, I forgotten was almost always American. I thought it was like Part of it because German the E, well or? it is, it's actually Old English, because the E-N ending we retain on plurals such as men, women, and children. They do that in Scandinavian languages, which we have the most in common with in Old English. So it's why we have problems with the apostrophe. We need the apostrophe because not all of our um, not all of our possessives end in s. That's you have a problem no, with it. I can quit any time I want to. Yes, this is true. <laughs> I don't know what that meant. And if anybody cares about this, I'll be shocked. Moving on. Yes, this is true, because we're supposed to be talking about Doctor Who and the Silurians, but... Sorry. That's Sorry. fine. Inconsistency. Inconsistency. Oh, God. So, where do we... Disappointed. Disappointed! Disappointed. Where do we start? Well, we're saying that... Well, you'll find out why we're saying that. Um, First impressions. Anybody. I was excited about this new doctor. Mm-hmm. So I came in with a very positive attitude and was a little bummed out when I saw it was going to be another base under siege. But then mm. there was a cutaway diagram, and I am a sucker for a cutaway <laughs> diagram. Even though this one was a bit confusing at first, I thought they had sort of a curly Q ramp flying through the yeah. air, and I realized I was misapprehending what the surface of the hilltop the was. The perspective was a little off. But I, I do love a cutaway diagram. So I started off with those positive impressions. Good. That's always good to know. What else? Yeah, it was second story for this doctor, so it was kind of good to see where that was going to go. It felt very much in the the style of the last book, kind of focusing on the military, felt very much like kind of newer science fiction shows that I've seen or experienced. So that felt like a, a new kind of style for Doctor Who, as opposed to a lot of the past stories that we've read. Mm-hmm. Um, very quick pace. There was a lot going on. Like you said earlier, this was seven part condensed into this book and it just kind of clips along at a, a, there's just throwing stuff at us left and right um, but yeah really enjoyable uh, it was nice for me to see uh, the Silurians 
from the beginning and 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 oh, what right. what I know about them having watched a lot of the new series and seeing yeah how where, where they came from and yeah. seeing their they, beginnings. So. They're quite different now. Totally different. Yeah. Totally different. <clears throat> they really are. Um, and interesting, you should bring up the last book, uh, Autumn Invasion, because these were published at the same time. These mm, came yeah. out the same month. Yeah. Yeah, John Peel has an interesting anecdote about how, as a 20-year-old or 18-year-old, however old he was at the time, he was shocked. Shocked, I tell you. When those first three books, Daleks and um, Zarbi and the Crusades, yeah. came out all at once mm. in paperback editions, he was like, oh my god, the artwork's gorgeous. And I have these in hardback and I'm going to buy them again. Yeah. And then, without warning, those two came out at the same time. And he had them both read within a day. Mm. Yeah. It was like, that's, it was just a thrilling time. Yeah, so... If, if it stays like this, I'm excited for it, but you've already given me a hint that uh, some, some stuff might be up. So. Yeah, just a little <laughs> bit. Just a little bit. Who Jenny. Was, I'm sorry, go ahead. I, I apologize. Earlier, who was it who was like throwing down the gauntlet that there will be only alien invasion, alien invasions and one other? It was who, Malcolm Hulk, the but, writer of this. But he was saying that's what he feared or what he hoped. No, he feared <laughs> that in limiting it to an earthbound yeah, setting, ah, okay. there would only be alien invasions as a result and of the only mad scientists, okay. and that turned out to be very much the case. Gotcha. Yeah. I, too, was intrigued by this map, because um, I was like, ooh, like, there's, there's a map they bothered <laughs> yeah. to explain something. That uh, shows a, a sort of investment that others, I haven't seen a, a map from it before. And Tony, you had hyped this one up a lot for me. I um, did. So I was looking forward to it. And without getting too into detail now, um, at first I was really favorably impressed. The prologue, I think, is really well written. Oh, yes. um, mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I was shocked, actually, that the first two paragraphs move us so quickly to some interesting places. But maybe I'll come back to this as my favorite part, and I can explain more about that then. Okay. Uh, but then, like... By page 24, I actually like wrote this down. I was kind of like, ah, it lost me. Like it, it got to that place that a lot of these novelizations get where it seems like it's caught somewhere in between a novel and a like a TV show blocking mm-hmm. where people mm-hmm. aren't necessarily like, do you want to go on a tour? Yes, I'm ready for the mm-hmm. tour. Wait, let's not go on the tour. I'm like, <laughs> why, why is this all kind of being so caught up in itself? Um, and compared to previous books that I've read, it is really different. Uh, all of a sudden I was like, wait, they work for like the government now? And yeah. there's yeah. A, that sort of zaniness that is in a lot of them is is gone. Mm-hmm. Uh, there wasn't a lot of interaction between Liz and the doctor. And like, yeah. I wasn't sure who these people were because they were new. And that, that happens a lot because I'm like never in this podcast. So mm-hmm. every time I come in, there's somebody new. But still, I was expecting, I was like, oh, you know, there'll be something similar like between Ian and Barbara. And Ooh. who was the other girl? Do- Dodo? Uh, Dodie? Um, <laughs> Dodo. <laughs> yeah, Dodie. Dodo, yeah. Dodo. And, you know, some, some sort of that, that repartee. And Has it been since the first Doctor's books that you've Not the first. No. Um, we... But... We did, the, we did first Doctor books there with were you. A couple, yeah, I mean... I, I'm just wondering if we did any second Doctor books with you. Trouton Doctor? I yeah. think so. I think... I think we like, might have done one. Yeah. It is only the second story for these characters. You're not that far okay. behind. Yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Yeah, in fact, we have to catch you up on but what happened. I know. I know. I was, so I was surprised at that shift mm-hmm. in, in this book quite a lot. Um, mm-hmm. It seemed like a totally different sort of story. It basically comes down to this. Uh, the Doctor and his two companions uh, end up in a situation where they have to call on the Time Lords, the Doctor's own race, for help. And they can't escape. Mm. So the Doctor has to go on trial for his crimes of interfering. 
His two companions get their memories wiped and they're sent home. Who are those? Um, Jamie and Zoe. Oh no, Jamie. You remember Jamie, yeah. that's right. I don't know the guy who's... No, wait, no. Who's Zoe again? You haven't met Zoe. Zoe's no, I don't later. think I met Zoe. Okay. That's right. You, you, you were on the podcast with me and JG. When mm-hmm. we did Highlanders. Highlanders. So Which you know Jamie. I think is still my favorite book. Oh, I've really? <laughs> yeah. Oh, my God. <laughs> Maybe. That's astonishing. But, um, yeah, <laughs> but, uh, yeah Jamie's gone. And then R. the R. new I really enjoyed Jamie. Yeah. So the doctor gets exiled to Earth. He is forced to regenerate. So this and that is a means new doctor. Turn into a new, yeah. A new okay. doctor, which we see on the cover. And uh, his companion is well, if you can call her a companion, is Liz Shaw, yes. who works for you. Uh, who works Let's for you? Let's <laughs> 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 not start that again. I just yeah. don't know very much about Liz Shaw, other than that she seems very much like a wet towel. Really? Because really? she's got like five doctorates. Well, she just doesn't do anything or know anything. She asks these questions. And it's kind of amazing that she actually does more in the book than she does on screen. Oh. Great. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Compared to the last book, the last book she played a more important role. Like this one, she is kind of more relegated to the background. She's very promising. Quite a bit, actually. Well, she was like the scientific officer. Oh, that's yeah. nice. <laughs> she like she has an important role, but this book there are so many secondary characters that are taking over. She actually solved a lot of the scientific mysteries yeah. last time. Mm-hmm. Here she quite... mostly is rejected when she asks. Yeah. When she tries to investigate the scientific mystery, that go away. Miss Young Lady. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, there's quite an ensemble cast in this book, too, which, again, was different. I'm not used yeah. to that being um, the case. But I will have praise to say later, too. So I'll okay. yeah. that. That, that definitely takes away from her, though, because yeah. she she's there's seven new people that have to do something. So We should probably start there, then, because we, uh, the experts panel, came up with the idea that Liz comes off worst of all mm-hmm. in this book. Oh, yeah. Because she's got a lot more to do in the televised version to the extent of helping the doctor with the uh, serum for the virus. Um, she doesn't go all hysterical when she sees the doctor kidnapped. In fact, she doesn't witness the doctor being kidnapped because it's di- the story is that different. Oh, and, yeah. I'd say, Jenny, one of the things I liked about Liz in the last book is that this doctor doesn't isn't as dismissive of and condescending to the Brigadier and Liz as he ordinarily has been his companions. Yeah. So she gets to science about around quite a bit, and okay. he actually listens to what she says instead of just showing her the hand like mm-hmm. the previous doctors would. So that's why I thought it was more disappointing that she doesn't get to do that. That is too mm-hmm. bad. Much here. Yeah, and that is a shame because on screen, she's brilliant. Unfortunately, you only get her in four stories. Mm-hmm. And then the production team says, you know... She's a little too good to be a companion, and they get rid of her. Well, she's more of an adult companion than we've had since Barbara and Ian. She's not a teen. Jamie wasn't a teen exactly, but once again, he has the whole noble savage thing going Mm -hmm. on as well. Well, the weird thing is, she may read on the page as younger, uh, as older than Barbara, but she's not. No, but not a teenager. Oh, no, definitely not a teenager. She's in her late 20s, and yet she has like the four doctorates. And a lot more is made of that in the last book. Academia was different back then, kids. Yeah, right. exactly. Well, she got started early. Hello, listeners. It's Tony cutting in just to let you know that everything I am about to say about the British schooling system is factually wrong. 
So I would suggest that if you're more interested in it, it may be a good idea to go and look at Wikipedia, but it basically comes down to this. Schools used to allow students to go to school until 16, then they took their O-levels and went on to their A-levels, but that has since been replaced with something called the GSCE. And that's what I was trying to refer to and what you're about to hear, so yeah. Sorry about the errors. So-called expert indeed. I'm sure. Really early. <laughs> well, yeah, yeah. I mean, she probably started her um, um, GCEs at um, 13 or 14, which would have been two years early for her. Is because, GCE a British? Um, yeah, I think I've got that term wrong. Um, she would have done her... Uh, oh, God, how does the British system of school work, or how did it used to work? Um, it works something like this. You went to school until the age of 16, and then you could either continue for a couple more years by taking O levels or A levels, and that was the I believe mm. that was the GSCE or the I'm getting the abbreviation wrong, but that extra schooling would decide whether or not you went on a university or not. So college students tend to be trend younger in Britain oh, for a okay. while than they used to. Nowadays we don't have they don't have graduation, but they still go to more to age eighteen. Okay. So yeah, she would have gotten started early. Because I'm thinking if you had PhDs, it takes like five years to do a PhD in America. And so she has a medical doctorate. Yeah. So yeah. Heaven forfend you try to do quite. one at U of C, it could take ten or more. Yeah, yeah. it's like quite incredible. Well, she is quite an, um, and something of an autodidact. So mm -hmm. she's probably taught a lot of it to herself. And in other words, she's more the doctor's equal than she is his subordinate. Mm -hmm. Except yeah. in this book, where she's a little more subordinated than, yeah. She does have that lovely book bit where she just yells at him on the moors and says, Doctor, it's right there. I can read a map just as well as you can. It's oh, yeah, right yeah. there. And he says, Oh, are you annoyed by me? And she says, No, Doctor, you're sweetness and light to be with. <laughs> oh, well, thank you very much. <laughs> I love that interaction. Yeah. Which is not on screen. <laughs> There's so much in this book that's not on screen. I could go I could do the whole podcast saying, That's not there, that's not there, that's not there, that's not there. Anyway. But, you know, Liz doesn't come off nearly as well as she should. So if you're having trouble with her, believe me, so are we. We are because, too. Yeah. Yeah. We were excited about her. We really were. Oh, it's just downhill from here. Wait, for the rest of the story? With Liz in them? Well... Well, you said she's only in four, right? Yeah. So we're halfway there. Well, the thing Did is... Did she quit because she's not getting good stories? Because no. that would be very exciting. No, she actually... You could say she was fired. She was just not asked back. Which turned out to be a good thing because she's found out about the same time that she was pregnant. Mm. So there was no way she was going to be able to because he couldn't film around it the way you can now. So she wasn't getting some fat, in other words. She didn't have that long coat to cover up her uh, baby bump. Yeah. And it wouldn't have worked. Mm. Yeah, so she probably would have left anyway. Yeah. The next companion we get will be far more <clears throat> traditional. Screaming a lot. <laughs> A bit. Mm. Not a lot of screaming, but there will there will be <laughs> screaming. Moderate screaming. There will be screaming. That being said. All right. So, Liz Shaw, not so much. Not, not the wing. Yeah. What? Um, let's start with the negatives, because you had some negative things to say. You said this woman is exactly the best book for women. Yeah. Um. <laughs> I think you may be right. You know, I, I guess there's been worse, but at least then there was some sort of service to the plot, like other books where women are getting kidnapped and led to a cave, and then we have to go and rescue them, or 
Barbara getting flogged, um, which is fascinating yeah. sort of interaction. Um, at least it seemed that. to serve something. Whereas here, there's all these women that, like you said, they seem really smart. They have these scientific kind of aspirations. There's this Miss Dawson who had the really interesting backstory about, um, for quite a few paragraphs too, which I yeah. was like, oh, um, that she had wanted to be this scientist, but her brothers had to leave and she was stuck caring with her aging mother, who it even implies sort of that perhaps the mother is sabotaging her at some point by becoming, you know, even more in Yeah, every in time that something was going to happen for her. Yeah, her mom, her mom needs her. Um, yeah. But then finally she does kick off and then she can join up with, with Wenley. Um, and I'm like, oh, well, that, that's exciting. But then, like, as soon as she gets there, she's like, oh, Dr. Quinn, uh, very kind, friendly, with that trace of a Scottish accent that fascinated her. Uh, he'd been married, but luckily his wife died in a car accident. Jesus. And he lived in a small cottage. Miss Dawson quickly made it clear to Dr. Quinn that she would be glad to help decorate the college mm-hmm. and make curtains and even clean and cook if he so desired. And I'm like... Here we go. Yeah, it's done. It just we threw it in the trash. I actually did like that it was portrayed as I thought incredibly gross. The whole quasi romance. Like I thought it was supposed to be queasy instead of sweet. It is. It is. You're not supposed to feel very good about that at all. Yeah. Yeah. And <laughs> didn't no. succeed. And you did not feel good about it <laughs> at all. So mission accomplished, really. But but I guess if if it, like a story wants to make me not feel good about something for a reason, then I might expect there to be an accompanying like redemption later on yeah. or sure. something of the sort, and that never really Ooh. comes to pass. Which oh god, like okay. for anybody in this. Book. So remember how I said I could do this whole podcast on talking about how it wasn't on screen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That redemption is on screen. Oh, interesting. Mm-hmm. The way that plotline goes is this. The Doctor becomes so entangled in trying to make sure the Silurians are taken care of that he discovers the body of Dr. Quinn in this cottage. It's mm. Miss Dawson is not there. Okay. And he covers up the death. And it's Miss Dawson who finds the body and then later comes and says, they've killed him. We've got to do something. Brigadier, you need to send your men down into the caves and kill them all. Mm-hmm. So she turns from being this very kind of mousy woman on screen to being a firebrand. And it's mm-hmm. this turnaround that's just amazing. And the only thing I can think of is the reason why Hulk changed that <laughs> is because you don't want the Doctor doing anything morally ambiguous such as hiding the death of a human right. being just mm-hmm. to keep the Silurians from getting in trouble. So that's why we have the version of events we do on screen where she is there and she ends up in the same sort of mental fugue state that everybody else that comes in contact with them gets into. Yeah, so I, I buy that. Um, mm-hmm. I wish that that would have been in here. That was another thing that was weird to me. I'm like, I don't understand this whole, like, oh, a dog has instinctual memories sort of, like, circling in the grass, and therefore that's why they still do it. Yes. Like, and then we have instinctual memories of drawing buffaloes on a wall. Like, I It's I not don't... that. It's a race memory. It's the, um, whenever they come in contact with the Silurians, at least in this story, they drop that load of horse shit later. Yeah. Yeah, um, as they should. It's yeah. very strange. We have an ancestral memory of them being dominant. Okay. And that's it. We have an instinctual fear of them. Okay. Which kind of makes sense. That because would... reptiles aren't exactly the most well-loved no. in the animal kingdom. and that would make sense. I, just from the beginning, I never had a good sense from the story of how developed mammals were when the Silurians were ruling the Earth. Because it was like, they're apes, and they seem to have some sort of communication. And I'm like, okay, so we're thinking like, you know, Lucy-type situation. Really like, small, like yeah, where are they? 
Like, but it wasn't quite clear to me. So okay. I'll give you the fictional answer, and then I'll give you the real answer. The fictional answer is... Can't wait for the real answer. Yeah, exactly. No, it's really simple. The fictional answer is that according to Hulk, they were basically very, very, very primitive primates. Very small, egg-like creatures. Okay. That could be put in cages and treated as pets. Okay, so not anywhere near... No. Okay. But as you notice, Octal, one of the Silurians, notes um, that they do use tools rudimentarily, and they seem to have emotions, and he keeps one as a pet... Yeah, and he's considered um, he's considered something eccentric for doing that. The real answer is mammals and reptiles never existed at the same time. Mm-hmm. They didn't, or rather, they didn't. The big reptiles never existed at the same time with mammals. Yeah, I mean, there were like <clears throat> teeny like mole creatures. Like That's that as was close as, as, as we close can. as we got. Yeah, yeah. That the the earliest mammals were those mole-like creatures that somehow survived that extinction event that took out the dinosaurs, but yeah, nothing like. So the science in this book is completely off, including the, the moon coming into orbit. But wow. you know that I was which like is lovely, willing to go with. The, yeah. it, but it, and that's why it was strange. I actually kept. I wanted to go back and analyze the beginning a little bit more. It was yeah, almost like the beginning that. was written by not by somebody else, but written in a different voice or a different. Hmm. T- like tightness than the rest of it because it gets so yeah. loose later. Like it's the not a Silurians can have all this technology and yet they don't know what exploding sticks are and <laughs> they like seem right. they don't wear clothes but they seem to know other people's clothes. There were all these little holes that kept coming around. Um, yeah, a frock that... coat I thought was particularly <laughs> interesting. But those are frock coat. Fur under nose is fine. I'm like, yes. that one's great. Yeah. So then where do we come off with frock coat? Like who, maybe there's an editing issue here? Maybe I don't know. it's just that Hulk knows that we'll know what that means, but he doesn't expect us to think that, I think it was Morka, isn't it? The one who's uh, yeah. stranded above ground. Yeah. Um, he doesn't think that Morka is going to, well, obviously Morka doesn't know. That other thing though, what was the other thing that you pointed out? All oh, the, the sticks. Yeah. There's a very good reason why they don't know what guns are. They don't need them. They've got the third eye. I mean, yeah. I just wondered, like, would they have had some sort of also part of their past before they had the third eye? That, like, weapons of any type, of any sort of report, or would they have had a use for those I ever? Doubt I doubt. I, they probably evolved that third eye specifically for defense. Because That's it's about the only thing they use it for that and everything else as it turns out yeah unlocking doors creating pathways through solid rock yeah it's a bit odd (laughs) so it's a good thing they get rid of them i was gonna say that's what the the ending is a little disappointing for me so you seal them in a tomb underground even though they can use their third eye to they're very comfortable being sealed underground in fact they did it themselves they don't have the power they won't have the power to revive themselves because the uh, reactor's been shut down but None of them died, so you have at least however many have been revived to do the work, right? Well, (sighs) in the televised version, they go back into suspended animation, except for Morkov, who is alive and is still trying to, you know, do a counterattack, but then the Brigadier's bombs puts him to rest. Yeah. Yeah. In fact, we noted that Hulk goes out of his way not to say anything about the Brigadier having killed them. He's basically yeah. just entombing them. It's just entombing them, and that's where I, I'm like, well, can't they just uh, mind-bend that shit out of the way? Like, earth-bend it? They're not awake <laughs> for it. But in the book, they don't say that they go back at the It is a weird so. plot hole, you're right. Yeah. 
It is a very bad plot hole, in fact, come to think of it. God damn it. But yeah. And another even bigger plot hole I just thought of, the Sea Devils, they have guns. <laughs> there you go. Yes, they do. In fact, cute yeah. little guns. Uh, I should have brought... In fact, when we do the Sea Devils, I'll bring my Sea Devil uh, action figure and show mm. you. Do they look like yeah. little lobsters? No. Darn. No, like they look like they have fish-shaped heads, kind Aww. of. They're very cute. Well, that's cute. Yeah. <laughs> but they're hard to hard as a bitch to understand when they talk because they gurgle. Oh, okay. <laughs> Silurians too. The new the new series, of course, does nothing no. with their voices. Oh god, don't get me started on that. <laughs> anyway, but yeah, I, I thought about that though. I'm like, they mm-hmm. they can just tunnel out. But, yeah. Okay. If they supposedly went back into suspension, then that would be a reason. That's the reason. There's nobody to get them out. And to go back to Jenny's point about why the prologue reads so differently. It's not in the televised version at all. Oh, okay. In fact, that's one of the joys of this book, that on television where you're waiting for the reveal of the monster and you finally get it at the end of episode uh, three, I think, here you start with them mm-hmm. and you become sympathetic to them immediately. Oh, yeah. And you spend a lot of time with them with this really mm-hmm. lovely prose that mm-hmm. you'll rarely get prose that lovely in a Doctor Who book, unless it's a Malcolm Hulk book. Yeah. He's very good at that. So he wrote this. He wrote this. this. And then he proceeded to write the other stuff. Yeah. Why? <laughs> no. Why? It's, it's because he's translating his own story to the, uh, to the written page. That being said, you're... you're uh, this is one of those advantages I have over you. That having seen the televised story, I can tell you how much of an improvement the story is. Mm. But that's also blinding me to looking at the story on the page as it is in situ. Because when you're looking at it, you're saying, okay, this is a great prologue, but the rest of the story is just like, uh, uh. I'm like, oh, but the whole thing is great. I guess having read so many of these and coming from that narrative background, I just am confused, especially in this example, because it's so clear for a, a writer who is capable of writing that kind of writing mm-hmm. why does kind of seeing their own script catch them up in it so so much mm-hmm. that it gets really blocky and it it seems i mean again oh, there's a million reasons maybe yeah. it wasn't a lot of time it wasn't a lot of money or stuff like that he's but, better at it than most yeah um, i mean we've seen that when other authors have done their own scripts they have either done that whole kind of script to page deal or they write a completely different story. It totally makes it up. So are the best parts of the novelization, since you are more of an expert on what's on the screen versus the page, do you think the best parts of the novelization are the parts that are um, unique to the book and not on the mm. screen? Some of them, yes. Especially the fact that they have names. Mm. They are not given names mm. on screen. Mm. None of the Southerians? No. Oh. And it's hard to tell them apart because mm. the only way you can tell them apart is by different heights and they talk slightly differently. Mm. And that's it, because one person is doing the voice for all three. Mm. <laughs> yeah, that's one of those situations. And they're just rubbery monsters, basically. I mean, you can look on the cover and see that that, that is a beautiful artist depiction of what it looks like. But when you see it on screen, it's a, it's a guy in a rubber suit. I love kaiju. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, precisely. And the Tyrannosaurus Rex is a guy in a rubber suit, too, as it turns out. It's kind of silly. Yeah, I would say that some of the changes are really good. Some of them, unfortunately, you get, you know, Miss Dawson's not as strong as she is on the on the screen. Dr. Quinn, oh my God, the characterization is marvelous. 
the actor's fantastic on screen. In fact, he almost became the next Doctor after John Pertwee really? left. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. We would not have had Tom Baker if he had gotten it. Mm. That being said, we get a lot more about Quinn in this book and why he does what he does. And it's just, as John Peel put it, you can psychoanalyze these characters because they are three-dimensional mm-hmm. and lovely. I mean, we may not like it because they're not terribly pro-feminist. But they're also still fully realized. And that was the primary thing that I was going to talk about when we got to the things we liked about this book. Yeah, let's talk about that then. Allison, did you want to mention anything about what you didn't like? I'm or? sorry. That's right. We, we were, were doing the negative. I around. I think I've butted in and done so. so. What? Maybe we should start with you then. What are things that you liked about this? I feel like about half the books that I've read in this series have been about colonialism in a way that I actually like. There's a lot to turn over in the mind. I thought it was really interesting how the British MAGA guy, uh, the Make Britain Great Again guy, who was so cartoonishly gun-co- Yes, Barker, Mm -hmm. is mirrored by um, Morka. Yeah. And that sort of, probably the passage I will remember the most from this one, maybe the prologue, but probably the one where he's so contentious of the farmers screaming and, oh, the noise, and how can I endure this? And, oh, finally, something to eat down here. And that sort of way in which he is, the two characters mirror each other and their contempt for one another, but it's really about British colonialism in the sort of graduated levels of contempt as well and like what he considers to be a, a greatly inferior species and all the noise and it reminds me of uh this might be um a document that was written for canadian government officials in the late 19th or early 20th century who were removing first nations children to residential school there's some passage about how the parents may scream and even try to fight you and cry, but don't worry, they have a very short memory. And within weeks, they forget that oh, those children ever geez. existed. And this concept that they are justifying what they do by saying, these aren't really people who yeah. love their children in the same sense. They may put on a big emotional display, but it's all very childlike. And thus, oh. you can put yourself in this other plane of, well, it's appropriate to wipe them out. So I thought that was actually a very powerful example of him doing that, only it's yes. to the humans yes. that are the modern humans. And I'm glad you brought that up because um, Malcolm Hulk himself was very interested in post-colonialism. And John Peel, when we were talking about this book last week, said, yeah, all of Pertwee's air is essentially about post-colonialism. But, Every story in it has a thread of it. But also in Morka's presence, the humans are reverting to a lower form of behavior yes. than those mm-hmm. same people ordinarily would be engaging in. And I thought that was... Sort of interesting take on things. Yeah, and in that way, it's mirroring another classic of uh, British science fiction, um, a story called Quatermass in the Pit, which I'm, I'm fairly certain nobody has ever seen. Fantastic movie was made of it, by the way, in 1967, but it started life as a television drama in 1955. And the, the three Quatermass series are considered kind of the precursor of Doctor Who, but this era of Doctor Who, because mm. it's all about... Earthbound scientists having to deal with problems from outer space. Well, the the basic plot of Quatermass and the Pit is they find what they think is an unexploded bomb when they're excavating by um, London Underground. It's not an unexploded bomb. It's a spacecraft from millions of years ago. It has proto-humans in it, and it also has these insectoid creatures in it that are decaying as soon as the, the uh, air hits them. And people start going literally crazy. They start reverting to primate behaviors. And even worse, 
some humans start killing other humans because they don't belong because these aliens had a great purge that they did every once in a while. It turns out uh, the whole upshot of the thing is all of humanity is Martian. We are the Martians. Hmm. It's a brilliant story. But you've got that going on too. This whole idea of as soon as humanity is confronted with something from its proto-history, it reverts. And it's never a good thing. I, I think that's brilliant, in fact. Yeah. Interesting here, not reverting to savagery, but to fear. Yeah. yeah. Powering. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Because they wouldn't have had any power at that point in their evolution. And in a way, you can see how the cycle feeds itself where Morka sort of is able to excite the emotional state that then justifies him behaving however he wants to. Yes. Like, you will and, be quiet in our presence. Yeah. Which is a lovely line yes. that's, again, not on screen. <laughs> but, yeah. <laughs> It's um, because all of the scenes with Morka are done from the Silurian point of view. So you get this lovely kind of triad screen effect. And and from their point of view, but you never hear them speak at that point. But Mm. then as he feels so greatly superior, his needs are the same. He wants fruit to eat, and then he feels better. With a knife. That was elegant. Apples are still the same after millions and millions and millions of years. There's something lovely about that. Yeah, now that you're saying that, that that scene was good. Uh, I like the very sudden and decisive violence in this book, actually. Really? <laughs> it wasn't, I did, because there wasn't yeah. a lot of lead-up or threat. It was yeah. just all of a sudden, like, yeah, and then Barker took out yeah. this and, and pistol-whipped this guy to death. And I was like, oh, <laughs> shit. Like, when it happens, it happens. That yeah. just happened. Yeah. And it, the, when it doesn't treat it in some sort of dramatic way, it's normalized, and you get the sense of, like, oh, okay, this is just how these characters are going to behave. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that was interesting. Interesting thing about Barker, too. That's not his original name. His original name is Baker. <laughs> you know why they changed it? This book was released in January 1974. Guess who was announced as the fourth doctor in 74? Mm. They figured if they were going to have an actor named Baker playing the doctor, they couldn't very well have a villainous character in a book named Baker. Ah, so see, they call him Barker, which is much more an appropriate name for what he does because yeah. he's very much a MAGA character. I thought that that yeah. was... Is he um, that? Over-the-top jingoistic on the screen as well? Not nearly as much. It is there, but we get more of it on... In fact, that's one of the additions. They give a lot more character development to him. Now, he still comes off as something of a stereotype, but it's more well-realized stereotype. Yeah, I was pleasantly surprised, and I think that was one of my favorite things about this book, is that everybody seemed to have at some point at least a little bit of backstory, something justifying Mm -hmm. their, their behavior, and even... When I'm like, ooh, this guy's all about the commies and the quote-unquote foreign species, which I'm like, you know, you could be talking about the Sailorians or you could be talking about, like, people from India. Like, yeah. <laughs> I, I think it would be interchangeable with him. But then his story about how he got fired because his, like, the, the other sniper shot his, like, I don't know what the word is, right. troop mate or, yeah. or, you know, someone yeah. in his, on his team. So but he then felt... he, like, shot the other guy and so out of anger. Justified and, yeah, yeah. yeah. He doesn't even think of it as retaliation. He just thinks of them as a, a whole unit, I thought. Like, one of them has has uh, sort of betrayed the rules of engagement here. Well, yeah. Therefore, I will... It's a tit for tat. It's like, yeah. well, you did that, so I'll do this. Okay. I don't even think he's thinking of it as revenge. It's just, they're all interchangeable yeah. to him. Yeah. Well, and even he lose that, upon, we lose upon. That point that he said to the Salarians at one point, like, if you're men of honor, you'll do this, that he's considering, well, they may be aliens, but they're mm-hmm. still part of a military organization, so mm-hmm. therefore I assume they must have the same rules. Yes. That mm-hmm. you can see really mm-hmm. clearly the kind of 
headspace he's working out of, mm-hmm. and yeah. it makes sense. And even though I don't like him, I don't like no. the frightening <laughs> "Make Britain Great Again." Then I'm just like, God, why? No. Why are these not an original slogan? <laughs> so prophetic. It's frightening. Uh, so of course I abhor that, but I still see this person as a human with their own vulnerabilities, and everybody kind of gets that, which yeah. is nice. And come to think of it. They didn't actually join the EU until 73, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't called the EU at that time, but I believe they joined in 73. So those attitudes that he's espousing are almost exactly the Brexit attitudes hmm. we're seeing. Really? This high, whole idea of we're going to lose what it's like to be essentially British if we join this conglomeration of foreigners. And yeah, that's going to carry through a lot of um, 70s, not just sci-fi, but also 70s pop culture in Britain. Yeah, it did make me, because, you know, I was born in 1986, um, <laughs> that I was like, I, I need to go research what was going on at this time, because mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. I'm sure there's some political context I'm missing out on. Yeah, and there's mm-hmm. definitely some underlying tension there. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Well, what else did we like about it? What else stands out to us? I think it was around page 85, I realized I hadn't seen the doctor in quite a while. Yeah. Is that a good thing? (laughs) Well, like I said, I was looking forward to this doctor, so I don't think he's badly characterized, but he's a lot less present for most of the story than I expected. Yeah. Um, and I think that's because... Distracted by auto mechanics, mostly. Well, he's... Well, yeah, there is that. He's also not exactly a prime mover in the story. If anything, he's just trying to keep these two sides from killing one another. Which is a weird place for the Doctor to be, because usually there is a definite good guy and a bad guy in the story. In this case, they're all acting in their own self-interest, and that's a bad thing, because they want the planet, Mm -hmm. of all things. So it's a weird situation for him to find himself in. He's going to do it again in the Sea Devils to a lesser degree. It's going to happen. He's very much on their side and yet on our side as well. What else? See, this is on... And I realized that at least my PDF didn't have page numbers like in the PDF. I only have the page numbers that like my program is assigning to um, it. That's which I think are not quite the same as yeah. the um, print version. But on page 68, this is in chapter 8, Into an Alien World. Let's see if I can get here. Morka has like a dream? Yeah. Uh, that I thought was pretty interesting. With the flying machines? Yeah, let me I love get that. here. I can't find it. But he had a, a dream and talked about it, and I thought, oh, that's a nice humanizing moment for... Yeah. I know exactly where it is. Here we go. When he gets into the uh, traditional sleeping position. Every mm-hmm. time he said that, I thought about the South Park um, we rural wedding episode, as is the custom. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't she beautiful, scraping off the pudding with the grace of a butterfly? She rubs the pudding on her face. The prince now attempting to remove one of the princess's arms, as is, of course, the tradition. The princess screaming with pain, everyone watching with anticipation, and the arm is off. Things are back to normal here in Canada. Time-honored traditions are once again... Yes, the princess is sticking the princess's arm up his ass. There it goes. He's really making a good go of it. What a wonderful day for Canada, and therefore, of course, the wealth. Here we go, yeah, that he dreamt vividly of his childhood. He had always been good at hunting as a boy and had run with men hunters when they went into the forest to attack the little furry apes. Mm -hmm. Some of the boys had kept a few apes in cages and tried to tame them, but Morka always felt nauseated. He killed many thousands of them. Um, But this... Just the idea that he had this nice dream about his childhood and where he was strong and and where things were as they should be, whereas now he's woken into this sort of hellish reality where everything is topsy-turvy to him 
And mm-hmm. even this this gets later echoed when the doctor tells um, mm-hmm. Octel that like, hey, those domes that you think are still there, like that really doesn't exist anymore. Like Sorry. there is nothing yeah. of your civilization, and um, Octel like staggers because he just you know can't process that information, which would be very true, right? Like if yeah. we went to bed and then woke up and it's like, by the way, every single thing you've ever known was gone, and these. You know, like cockroaches are ruling the earth as yeah. intelligent CEOs. We would probably feel a little well, frightened. The atmosphere as well. is different as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. but it's cold. Um, the they can't breathe anymore. Uh, there's all these thinner. changes that have occurred. The sun is different, even. You know, I how... thought was the most interesting dinosaur-like thing because there's so much of this. Said like, it's not in terms of timeline. Does it make sense? Mm-hmm. Even in yeah. science fiction, but there is this concept that dinosaurs would not do well in our atmosphere yeah, now yeah, and in our yeah, climate yeah. and environment would be so so alien to them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And so much like so that. that it causes him to cry, which I think mm-hmm. is just lovely. Mm-hmm. I mean, you did say that the single wet tear single earlier tear. and we were making fun <laughs> the of The wet tear. Freeze-dried tear. Yeah. The chunky tear. Scaly tear. But the very fact that they can cry and the fact that they feel yeah. these emotions. Mm-hmm. There's always some good moments like that in these books. At some point, some they're at the crime scene. Yeah, Liz Shaw is there. And then someone who's like an investigator is like, well, I'm going to be wandering around over there. I'm yeah. like, what? <laughs> like, you just come to a place and you're like, well, I'm wandering first around. first police work. just don't know who I am. Like, what? <laughs> um, just funny things like that. Um, Though there is a good fake out at the end of chapter eight because you don't know whether he's killed her or not. Yeah, I see yeah. he had. Yeah, and that's actually one of the few times that a chapter end coincides with a cliffhanger on the I TV bet. show. Yeah. And it's a terrifying one because you see the attack from his point of view. Mm. It's like, oh my god. But yeah. Along those same lines, Octel's death is just heartbreaking. When they decide to turn against him and he has this flashback to hatching from an egg and yeah. being a young man mm. and all that. It's like, oh my god. Yeah. His life flashing before his eye. Yeah. Eyes. Three. All three <laughs> of them. Yeah. But yes... Yeah, it's it's really quite sad, and it's really well done, as opposed to on screen when you don't really care. I mean, you do care, but not nearly as much. Yeah. When they're humanized, they have names, they have backgrounds, they have past lives that they'll no longer ever see again. Well, and the fact that he is the one that starts the book, it's, his name is literally the first word of this novelization. Mm-hmm. I love this first paragraph. Um Octel stood watching as the last of the young reptile men and women took their turn to go down safe to safety in the lift. So it's like, okay, this person is some sort of leader. They care about their their you know comrades. That's why he's watching these people go down. The gleaming metal doors of the lift were set in rock. The doors slid open and shut soundlessly, taking another group of Octel's people. Okay, so we definitely know now that he's the leader to safety below. Across the valley, the sun was already setting, and its last light made the green scales of the young people shine brilliantly. Now that we know what they look like, we know they're not human. Yeah. Or something. Octo wondered when he would see the sun again. That's a beautiful And then we know that, okay, they're this not just like a happy, you know, day trip down <laughs> down to the of, earth. Yeah. They're they're going there for good and um we all would, I think, empathize with this idea of never being able to see the sun again. Yes. You immediately feel sad <clears throat> for these people. This underground reptilian Noah's Ark. Yeah. No matter <laughs> what is going to happen to them, this whole first paragraph really shuts something up. And then, of course, you know, too, well, they're hiding from something. There must be some sort of conflict coming, which mm-hmm. soon is, is revealed yeah. very quickly. 
Um, it's just a great, such a fast, awesome opening to this book. I was really impressed. And the last bit that we get before we get the whole thing of what happens to them after, um, it's the last time we see Octo. Octo slowly walked toward where Mork and Kato were waiting. Just before stepping into the lift, he looked again across the valley to see the tip of the sun as it sank below the horizon. It was the last time he was to see the sun for a hundred million years. I yeah. love that. Oh. I adore that. And you just don't get moments like that in Doctor Who novelizations very often with mm-hmm. all the ones that we've read. Yeah. And we already have some characterization established as Octo as being empathetic with mammals. Um, and he had one and he let his pet go yeah. kind of secretly. Yeah. And Morka has the disdain for them. It's all established. It's so fast and easily done. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is why it makes me sad. Because I'm like, clearly this, this guy, <laughs> um, Hulk is a good writer. But I just gets distracted by, by his own script. Yeah. Or doesn't. <laughs> if you know what the original script was like. But, <laughs> yeah, I can see that. Um, Don, I wanted to ask you. Because I'm not sure they got as far as okay. you did. Um <laughs> I need the secrets out. No, I was just gonna say because you the character of Masters, the guy that comes down from London and the first one to get uh, infected. Yeah. And Jenny's nodding her head, so she did she saw that part. I just came where he came into the office. I actually thought like, her, hey. he might turn out to be some sort of overarching villain. It was going to be like the plot of Alien where, <laughs> well, senior government officials knew all the time that the that the, the Silurians were there. Oh, and God. They, wouldn't that be awesome? That, that's what oh. I, where I oh thought they were going to go. And they wanted great. them to go sort of poke at them, no. investigate them, and see what was no. up. And if all the unit people were killed, uh, there's a backup plan for containing them. Well, interesting because in the new series, when Matt Smith comes along and they reintroduce the Silurians, that happens to be quite true because the government does know the Silurians. Yeah. The, the earth reptiles are all down there, but they don't dare, you know, dig too far down. Yeah, it's like they're doing their thing. They're doing, doing their our thing. thing. Yeah. Master strikes me as a characterization of a gay man a little bit because he's very like, oh dear, I never thought of it. Uh, I, yeah, now that you say it, I guess yeah. I was picking up a little on that. He just seemed like kind of part of the military hierarchy just like there trying to act like he knew what mm-hmm. he was talking about getting his nose in business that clearly he doesn't know shit about yeah and then he ends up being cannon fodder pretty much just like a true the only reason i bring it up is because the only other time i can think <clears throat> of an openly gay character being in the doctor who book was another malcolm hulk novel mm-hmm. oh. unfortunately it happened to be the villain well <sighs> typically <laughs> we're used to that yeah exactly we really should be Oh, dear God. <laughs> That's very true. The ending. The very end? The very end. Yeah, because... Was it too abrupt? Because... The expert panel thought it was. Yeah. In fact, the entirety of chapter 19 is two pages. Yeah. That's... And the very last page, essentially, is the, the doctor, uh, yeah. uh, where are all your soldiers? My soldiers, said the brigadier, as though he might be trying to hide something. Oh, they're out and about, cleaning up the mess and all that. He again glanced at his watch. I see, said the doctor, realizing there was something the brigadier didn't want him to know. Well, no more violence or killing. I'll see you in London. The doctor slowly drove Bessie out of the car park and down the gravel road to the main road. As they turned into the main road, he said, The brigadier's got something up his sleeve, you know. 
Liz didn't answer. She just looked straight ahead down the road. The doctor slowed down the car and stopped. Something's going on that I don't know about, he said. And you know what it is. Liz turned to him. Doctor, not everyone thinks like you. Her words were interrupted by a series of violent explosions. The doctor turned and looked towards the main opening to the caves. A huge cloud of smoke and dust was belching out of the cave. Then there was another explosion, and the entrance to the cave collapsed in a huge deluge of huge rocks. He sealed them in, the doctor said quietly. Liz nodded. He had to. They'd never have accepted sharing this world. The doctor felt anger rising in him. We've lost the chance to find out now, he said. We shall never know. The doctor started up the car again and continued along the main road in silence. I think that ending's brilliant. They are right, though. It's expanded a bit in the last episode. Mm-hmm. Liz is shown maybe to know, but maybe not to know. So here it's double betrayal. It's not just the brigadier betraying him, it's Liz betraying him. It's humanity betraying him and making him disappointed. And the thing that sells that last scene is John Pertwee's performance. Because he's, you can just tell he's sad and angry and just ready to kill. And he doesn't have a next adventure to go off to. He's not leaving in the TARDIS. He's not, he can't can't get away from it. He can't say, well, eventually I'll get back and try to fix this or something like that. And he's going to have to ride with Liz all the way back to London with this hanging over his head. Yeah. Yeah, I think we've all been there. Hmm. Well, I have anyway. But do you think that some of that is is the fact that Liz is just kind of part of that military-industrial complex? Like, she's part of the machine? So she's kind of understanding of it and just like, well... She's not, though. But it's not understanding, but she's like, that's the game. She is a human, though. In fact, her her line in the televised version is, the doctor says, did you know? And she said, no. And she then follows it up with, they were afraid in London, they never would have accepted sharing the the earth with the Silurians. And you can tell that she's covering something. But yeah, I think it's just that, yeah, the Doctor is in between a rock and a hard place here in a way that he never is again, really. Well, yeah. and we've seen Hartnell and Troughton Doctors be relatively glib about things that we might generally categorize as genocide before. Yes. Or executions and whatnot. So it's different that he's so somber and tormented mm-hmm. even about this that's a, I like that as a new char- a characterization of the new doctor in yeah. which will be his own person and not just even at the end of the last appearance of Troughton doctor he's uh, kind of pleased and relieved that the other uh, time lord has been vaporized or disintegrated and like oh we're all that silver now just as well <laughs> moving on what do you mean you're judging me what's going on here or something so i that was a new element that's true and I, th- I think back to what um what um oh hang on a sec let me think of his name because if i am a bit on 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 this thing that i forgot his name i'm really gonna be upset jg that reminds me of J.G. McCrory's theory that the second Doctor is all about just killing the monsters, and by the time mm-hmm. you get to the third mm-hmm. Doctor, his regeneration is making him think there must be another way. Mm-hmm. They're absolutely... In fact, the fifth Doctor, when he re-encounters the Silurians and the Sea Devils and it all goes to shit, his last line is, there should have been another way. Mm-hmm. And you can see that mirroring this. Yeah. 
Because essentially everybody fucking dies in that book. <laughs> in that story, the humans and the Silurians and the Sea Devils are all dead by the end of it. And it's like, what could I have? There's nothing he could have done because of the same problems. That being said, <laughs> the illustrations. What did you think of the illustrations? Because we're going to get, when we get these earlier books, we're going to have a few of them. And the one that amuses the hell out of me is this one on page 52. Yep. Where apparently <laughs> Octel is doing the uh, Dick Cavett show. Yes. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> interviewing Quinn on the other side. I'm like, so. But I love that. It's like, oh. The idea, perhaps more than the execution. Yeah. I, I like the idea that they are cutaway diagrams and maps, but uh, maybe a little fast and loose with concepts of perspective and foreshortening. <laughs> this is true. This I is like very true. How they took a break to give the definition of induction in the book, but they didn't yeah. touch like the whole atom smashing pro like mm. side. They had a they bunch can only of other cover so many scientific big words. Like, that I'm like, you're gonna leave those alone. But induction. This is what the kids are gonna be we can really do Induction. <laughs> we can explain the way viruses and. Vaccines yeah. work. We can explain the way a nuclear reactor takes heat from uranium rods to create yeah, electricity. That. But no. Yeah, too many. Nothing else. No. Um, Hulk is still taking the educational remit. No, I enjoy that. I was, yeah. I was going to bring that up. Yeah, I quite enjoyed the fact that he took the time to explain a lot of these scientific uh theories aspects yes. well there's an extra little blurb on the back of the pdf cover that says doctor who the children's own program which adults adore mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. that's cute. well that's like the that must be from uh, the earlier edition mm-hmm. it is from the earlier edition i don't i don't know when the prevailing theory about where the moon came from like i don't know in scientific yeah. history where that came from but the theory that the moon itself was an astrological thing that came from somewhere else in space mm-hmm. that got caught in Earth's gravity, like, that is a theory about how our moon came. Mm-hmm. The prevailing theory now is that something smashed into Earth and the debris from that yes. formed the moon. But if this was written before that, then okay. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, you never look to Doctor Who for good science. No, 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 no. We're not fact-checking with this. Right, but if you're looking for morality plays and you're looking for people acting against their best interests and the consequences of those actions, this mm-hmm. book mm-hmm. nails that. Yeah. And John Peel said when he talked to Terrence Dix about Malcolm Hulk, and I was like, oh my God, you have talked to Terrence Dix, haven't you? Um, he said that something Malcolm Hulk was really interested in was human behavior and the way mm-hmm. that ha- that goes, and you can see it here. Yeah. This is very much, um, there are no monsters in the story, and yet there are monsters all over it. Well, we're the monsters. We are the monsters. Yes, we are. Yes, we are. Anything else before we go on to... Um, Goodreads. Will it be usual in the next few stories to see this relatively low level of doctor content? No. And yet, um, mainly because the next few stories, again, are going to be seven-parters. Um, the next one, yeah, there'll be more. He's a little, he's a bit more involved. Liz is a lot more involved because, unfortunately, she has to play damsel in distress for that story. Uh. Yeah, I know. I am interested in this idea that for the first time in the stories we've seen, he has kind of a job. 
yeah. a consulting gig. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And that's that that's a new thing that I think could be interesting to explore. I think we just sort of got the, the very tip of in this story. Yeah, and unfortunately we're not going to get a lot of that. I mean, later stories, the, the fan fiction will get into that a lot more, especially the idea that the Doctor obviously needs a house, which he's never going to spend much time in, obviously, because, you know. But a little bit of the idea here that, you know, this is the first one that ends with him basically going home to not the TARDIS, but some other yeah. destination where we'll have to... Well, time to sit and think about what happened instead of roaring off into another time and place where yes. there would be a distraction. And what I'm going to find particularly charming is the fact that in the next story and in at least two others, he finds out what's going on through television. Hmm. He has to watch on television. He's like, wait a minute. God, Zooks, I know what's going on, man. We've got to get down there. You can see the third, the third doctor saying something like that. He's that sort of character. The one thing that for some reason made me laugh so much was that when Chapter 10, Man Trap, which I Man <laughs> love as a title. Could have gone in a lot of different directions. Yeah. Um, oh, and I have to mention the potholing, but oh, yes, yeah, the, the this man trap. Like, Liz goes in to talk to Barker because after he's been hurt and he's in the sick bay and and he's eating these grapes. He's like, care for a grape? He indicated a huge bowl of grapes by his bed. And then they're just talking and then eating these grapes. And I'm like, this is so weird. Liz Rose, thanks for the grapes. <laughs> why are they? Why, I did wonder if I was missing an innuendo. Or I know, like, I don't understand. A symbolic meaning of something. I wanted really badly to bring grapes today because I was just like, what the like what? Like and you're sitting in a placement sick bay. from the Grape Growers Council. You know, like like I'm imagining like the Star Trek sick bay, but everyone's lying around eating grapes. <laughs> but really more ancient Roman random right, yeah. kind of thing. Um, that, I don't know why that struck me so funny. The especially they would have been out of season. <laughs> yeah, I just I don't know the um the potholing thing. At first, I was really confused. I was like, wait, what is this? And I figured it must be another word for, like, spelunking or something. Mm-hmm. And so I looked it up. And the the first definition is that, <laughs> that's right, um, you know, caving. But the second definition was for Urban Dictionary, which was dunking your testicles in another person's anus. And I was like, oh, okay. That's another, another definition. As somebody that kind of knows something about that sort of thing, <laughs> New to you, you. you can't dunk yeah, your testicles I, in another person's I don't anus really unless, think so. unless their anus is like large gaping. like a well. It's a gaping oh, you know, bumble. That's why I'm just keeping quiet. There are people out there. Yeah, touching it indeed. There are people out there that could indeed have a. I mean, what if in is an aspirational word? Maybe it's just in the region. Yeah. Just at. Uh, Oh, baby. I wish I could dunk my testicles in your anus, but. Oh, good God. But it's such a gaseous atmosphere. (laughs) 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 My contribution, I'm done now. Oh, you're going to kill me. <laughs> That's what Murder- I murderous. had to contribute. Oh. That was one of the first things I did coming Thank into Thank you. I'm story, here all night. So. Well. Um, yeah. Urban Dictionary, always good for a laugh. Oh, always good for an innuendo you did not know existed. I don't yeah. think that's an innuendo at this point. I think just an overtness. <laughs> wow. Oh, my fucking God. That's insane. Okay. So. Thanks um, for the grapes. Yeah. <laughs> oh. oh. Well, that hasn't completely... Oh, never mind. Yep. Yep. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Jenny. <laughs> <laughs> no problem. So, uh, good reads. As we always do, 
Oh, God. Let's go to Goodreads.com for online reviews of the book written by other readers really quickly. Um, by the way, if you're listening to this podcast and you want your review featured when we get to an upcoming book, or you have a question about it, simply read the book, write a review, or comment in our new Goodreads group by the deadline, so we have a chance, so we have a chance to see it before discussing the book, and we actually have a few people. So I'm going to read all of those. Um, the average rating for this book on Goodreads, out of five stars, is... 3.75, which is slightly lower than the score he got for his novelization of the, uh, the War Games, which I find interesting. The three people who wrote into our Goodreads page, of which uh, Tom Hodden was the first, I don't have scores for them, unfortunately, but we can get a sense of what they gave it. Malcolm Hulk hits his stride in this one with a colorful, enjoyable romp. This is a romp. Uh, sorry, Tom. Uh, the science and the prologue might be a little confused, just a bit, but it paints a wonderful picture of the alien world of the Silurians that really adds a layer of depth and pathos to their threat and makes them far more interesting than there would be room to show on the small screen. Liz comes out of this book as a, a lot more favorably than in her first appearance, with more chemistry between her and the Doctor, and more of a sense of an inquiring scientific mind enthralled with the mystery she delivers. It's a Liz Shaw I would have liked to have seen a lot more of. Okay, well, we can agree to disagree. David says, I've been obsessed with dinosaurs far longer than I've been a Doctor Who fan, so I was always going to like this story. Plus, it's got themes and lessons that a fair few people in politics today should pay attention to. That's probably a point. Um, Hulk's changes from the televised story are quite interesting. Major Baker is massively fleshed out to be a bit of a cliched right-wing establishment type. Disappointingly, Dr. Lawrence just... Oh, we didn't even talk about Dr. Lawrence. Just sort of keels over in this. In the TV story, he hates the Doctor for one thing. And he has a massive manic death scene caused by the virus. The reptiles are never referred to as Silurians, which is good, seeing as Hulk had the paleontology completely wrong. He fails to rectify the moon inconsistency, though. I would have just replaced it with the asteroid that killed the dinosaurs, which, as we find out later in Doctor Who, is not an asteroid, but that's for later. Still very enjoyable. Look forward to more Hulk. And Michael says, you can make an argument that the third Doctor has the best run on target novels based simply on the fine work done by Hulk and Dix. So far, yeah. Hulk and Dix. Hulk and Dix. Dick and Dix and Hulk. Dix and Hulk. This adaptation really reinforces that assertion. Only era that comes close to the seventh Doctor target novels. Well, uh, we'll talk about that. There was a bad one. Oh, wait, their ratings were right there. I'm so sorry. Goddamn. Uh, it says, well, no. Michael's rating was three stars. Nick Scrimshaw gives it two and says, Disappointed! <laughs> I read this while we were away for a few days and in a way was trying to relive my childhood. I don't know if I read this particular book as a child, but I certainly watched the TV series and actually watched it again a year or two ago on a cult satellite station and still enjoyed it. The book is obviously aimed at children. And while it was interesting to read the author padding out some of the backstory and giving more details to the characters, some of the plot was a bit silly, and I would like to think even the 10 or 11-year-old me would have found bits of this too simplistic. 
At best, I would say it was pure Doctor Who escapism and easy to read, which was handy as the rest of my family, including my two loud teenage daughters, were getting on with various things around me while I was reading it. It was fortunate since I hate my family. Yes, but at worst... Goodness. She doesn't okay. mean that, Nick. But at worst, the characters and plot were naive and a bit silly in places. I was intending to give it just one star, which I never do. But having read some of the other reviews from people who obviously enjoyed it more than me, I've been persuaded to give two. Partly also because it hasn't put me off reading other Doctor Who books because I'm still a fan of the TV program and realize that not every book has to be brilliantly written or a piece of high art or literature. Well, a truly generous soul. How generous? I, I was going to say, he must not have read very many other novels if he thinks this one's that bad. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's not that bad. In fact, it stands out from so many of the others. Hasn't met me, many other teens and he thinks his kids are that bad. <laughs> they really are. Just two loud daughters. Jeez, God. Females. I'm so sorry. Your family drama now gets put on Goodreads <laughs> and people are like, look, I just came here for a Doctor Who review. Now I'm right. inside your family and I'm... Inside your family. I hope things get better. I'm sorry about your struggles. <laughs> so speaking of we struggles, wouldn't call it the struggle exactly though. A struggle. But. Speaking of struggles, Jenny, what would you give this out of five stars? So I was just thinking in my head, as one does, that <laughs> a dangerous with, with these books. <laughs> I, I think I like them when they are bad because at least then there's more for me to kind of laugh at and like put little funny notes on my, my yellow Lego pad and then say things during a podcast and just sort of be a troll. Yeah. <laughs> bad review is more fun to write. Yeah. yeah, and then I like them when they're not that bad, when I'm actually interested in having a good time with them in very many ways. And I don't know what it is about it, but that, and I want to confirm that I have it right. The Highlanders is the one that opens up with the hawks and the, um, like the eagles and the one, they're like doing hawking things and it's sort of like the... I think so, yeah. The, um, not allegory, but like a metaphor for Uh what's going to come later. Yes. That one I still think is my favorite one that I've read. Okay. Um, because of that opening and like the historical, um background to it and I really like Jamie as a character mm-hmm. and even if some things that happened during that were really silly uh, it mm-hmm. still was like actually fun yeah. and this is one of those ones that kind of falls in the middle I'm like it's not bad enough that I could make a lot of fun of it you know it's not excruciatingly unfeminist or anything um, mm-hmm. and it, it the rest of it the prologue I, I loved but the rest of it wasn't like good enough that I was so really excited about it mm-hmm. I don't know okay. um, so it always puts me in a tricky position so I I want to say like, like a, like a two and a half or like a maybe a just a aspirational is that word again an encouraging three. I I don't know. An encouraging three. Um, You're not grading a it, student who's going to revise it. You know. It's so hard when so many things are right and then other things are disappointing. I just don't. Again, like I don't know why when the strength of the writing is there that it couldn't have come all the way all the way through. No, I get that that, that um, help keeps me from giving a, a better kind of score. I definitely get that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dalton? I'm going to agree with the, the Goodreads review, 3.75. Because, yeah, it did. It was like, it was well written. It wasn't, it's not, it's not like Terrence Dixon on a bad day. Right. Like, <laughs> there wasn't that going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were a lot of characters that were doing a lot. Like, we already mentioned, like, Liz didn't have a lot to, to do. Even the doctor didn't have a whole lot to do. Like, you could. Yeah. You could almost take them out of here and figure something else out, and it would be just as interesting. Right. True. Like, uh, 
I don't know. Uh, even the brigadier seemed to be doing a lot more than than the doctor was. But uh, okay. yeah, it was it was enjoyable. It was like I like I said earlier, it did remind me of a lot of kind of uh, current sci-fi that I've seen that's really based in like military sci-fi aliens taking over or whatever. Um, yeah, perfectly enjoyable though. Not not like horribly boring or anything. So three point seven five okay. for moi. And Allison. I think I'm going to go 2.5, which is um, maybe, I don't know, higher than I was thinking of before. I think the parts that I will find myself thinking about again later will be the different ways in which Barker, well, say it's appropriate for him to dehumanize a cyborg as they're not human, but you know what I'm saying, the different ways that various characters dehumanize others, how he's thinking about how he is betrayed by one sniper so he kills the one who's actually surrendered and how how he, like I said, dehumanizes in the right term here when we're talking about different species, but the, the Silurians, as he imagines them to be spies. Mm-hmm. And uh, so whatever he does is justified, even though he doesn't even know who he's fighting yet. He knows he's justified in killing all of whoever, whatever they are, just because they're down there. So they must be up to no good, even right. though he doesn't know who or what he's fighting yet. Exactly. And then the way the Silurians dehumanize the proto-humans and then the current humans in a very different way. Instead of they are devious, you know, they are they are squalling animals, they are vermin, they are pests. I think that's what I'll remember later. The, the humans are vermin, they are pests? Well, yeah, yeah. No, just the, the three different modes of dehumanization that account for most dehumanization yeah, of their yeah. enemies. And, and they're definitely done in a very colonial mm-hmm. way. And then the probably over over psychoanalyzing this, but the way that the humans descend to a, a memory of a previous primate's state and mindset. Mm-hmm. So I, I think I'm going a lot further than what's intended here in the book. But think about we see maybe family members you haven't seen in a while, or friends from a pe- previous era mm-hmm. of your life, and you feel yourself reverting mm-hmm. to who you were then. No, that makes ways, sense. Ways you no. acted, you're actually kind of embarrassed of, or yeah. maybe too aggressive, or immature, it, or easy to make fun of. Agreed. But you still go back to being that person. I think I think those are the things that I'll remember more than the actual plot. And I'm mm. looking forward to seeing a different version of the Doctor who doesn't have as many options to sort of run off at the end. True. Who's going to have to deal with things that happen in the story. It's not just on sort of a spiritual level or memory or psychological level, but he'll be sticking around. Yeah. He'll be seeing the Brigadier again. He'll be seeing the unit people again. He'll be in Britain again. Yeah. And I think mm-hmm. that's a that seems fresh True. for what we've seen so far. And in fact, that's something that the uh, experts panel said something about um, Arnold T. Blumberg. Um, said that if this were done in New Who, that would be the start of some sort of arc in which the Doctor and the Brigadier distrust each other mm-hmm. and they have yeah. to work around that. And to some degree, it is there in the next two stories. By the time we get to the next season, the units become a family and it's a little too cozy at times. Mm-hmm. So it's like... Ugh. But I would say that this book definitely fits into that weird kind of mid-category when Doctor Who was trying to be something slightly different than it had been before. Mm. This book reads a lot more like an episode of The Avengers, to some degree. Mm. It definitely reads a lot more like an episode of another British 70s series from that time period about environmentalism called Doomwatch. It's Mm. much more adult. It's mm-hmm. much more, Yeah, there are m- many more consequences going on, and there's a lot more at stake, and it's not as, 
it's not as childish. It's not as innocent. It's like Doctor Who itself is growing up to some degree because its audience is growing up. Yeah. And I feel, personally, that the prose has grown up, even though this is the earliest of the Doctor Who prose. John was talking about the fact that this is the first time they've gotten Doctor Who written properly since his first three books from the 60s. And you can definitely see it. You can definitely see that even though it may not be the most positively feminist thing, he's still thinking about women and how they fit into 70s society and how there's still that struggle for them and how Miss Dawson had to take care of her mother and how it all goes wrong for her even though she still has this opportunity. And Liz is still co-opted by the military even though she's probably the most brilliant character we will ever see in Doctor Who. Mm. And I love Hulk's prose. So I'm going to give this the same score that I gave it last week, and you're probably all going to be scandalized. I gave it a 4.5. Mm-hmm. And wow. the, other, the other two did too. But I think it's because we're all coming from the same place, which is we've seen the TV show. We know much better this Yes, yeah, we like the TV show, but it has its flaws. With the, Even with its flaws, this is better. The book is better than the TV show. Go figure. And as usual, Hulk is the strongest there is. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Which people seem to appreciate better this time. So thank you for that little laugh, as half-hearted as it was. So... Thank you, guys. I chortled. I know. I love that little chortle. And thank you, fellow time travelers, for giving us your valuable time. Next time, we go back to the future to read a 1980s novelization of the next televised story, The Ambassadors of Death. Next time, it's going to be dicks, and the time after that, it's going to be dicks. And they're going to be 1980s novelizations, too, so... The quality is going to dip just a little bit, just to warn you about there you go. Anyway, in the meantime... Mediocre dicks. Well, mediocre (laughs) mediocre dicks. Well, no, it's kind of mid-range dicks. The sort of dicks you don't mind. (laughs) You still enjoy them. They're not the dicks you look forward to and yearn for at night. But, you know... God damn it, we need to stop with the dick stuff. In the meantime, if you've liked what you've heard here, like us on Facebook. I'm suddenly all thirsty. At Doctor Who Target Book Club Podcast on Word with No Spaces, and I mean the um, Urban Dictionary version of Thirsty. You can also visit our nearly pristine subreddit at reddit.com forward slash r forward slash target dc. I'm wearing a red sweater and my face is getting just as red. Also, feel free to watch videos of our first 12 episodes. Give give us a thumbs up or comment on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash user forward slash emperor forward slash videos. They're just staring at me as I read this. Follow (laughs) us on Twitter. We're at dwtargetbc and Jenny Ingersoll has just moved in for the kill. And subscribe to us via the podcast or provider of your choice, including Spotify, woohoo, if all else fails you, and it inevitably will, email us at dwtargetbc at gmail.com. Thank you very much for listening and enjoy your travels. Bye-bye. Just picturing that, like, alien scene with the aliens, like, right here. (laughs) And the little mouth is going right beside the face. (laughs) (laughs) Well, Jenny's cuter than the little alien. Yes, but that's just what I picked. (laughs) When you said she moved in for the kill. She did Just this deadly. (laughs) (laughs) We watched Aliens not that long ago. God, I love that movie. Uh, 1986, the year you were born. I remember seeing it in the theater with my boyfriend. I know. I was born. (laughs) 
Oh my god, that's just so sad. And I, I saw it with Tony at the music box. Alien. Did. That's where I saw it on the, the big screen one. there. Yeah, the first it one. came out the year I was born. <laughs> so what? So at oh, some point, you and I will have to go see Alien Three because that came out the year you were born, no doubt. I don't think no, so. I'm, I'm making a joke, obviously. <laughs> no, we'll need to go see something from 85, which is lots of stuff. Uh, that's oh, that's true. Oh, I did No, it has to be an alien. You're older than Jenny. Yeah. Oh, what you older? What month is your birthday? September. Okay, I'm October. I'm 96. And, and um, Danny, I think, is 82. Hmm. So he's a little older than both of How you. How old were you when you saw Alien? When I saw Alien? Yeah, when that came out. I didn't see it in the theater. Oh. But it came out, um, my aunt had a um, subscription to all the pay channels, including HBO. Oh, okay. wow. And they were just showing Alien left, right, and center <laughs> that oh, summer. Okay. So I got to see it as a kid. What were your impressions of it at that age, in that time? Like, how did you react to it? Pants wedding horror. Ah, okay. Yeah, I was okay. surprised I was allowed to watch it, to be yeah. honest. But I probably, I can't have watched it the very year it came was out. Was it unedited on HBO? Oh, or? God, yeah. Oh, mm-hmm. oh, oh yeah. Fuck, yeah. I think I've seen part of it, like, on um, UHF, mm-hmm. like, in the 90s. But it was edited. Well, There's certain edited. movies that are just so wild and that they haven't, they're like nothing that had come before them that I really wish that I could go back and just sit in the theater with those people mm-hmm. that you're in this big dark space and this crazy shit is happening and like you've never seen it before especially things like 2001 Space Odyssey or yeah. like a yeah. Blackwork Orange like that are just so out there I'm like how do people react to this at yeah. first I really wonder one of the reasons I wanted to see Alien in the theater is that my first boss had talked about when it came out how scary it was and how yeah. they had never seen anything yeah. like it before and yeah well, it was well. just to a lesser degree, I, I saw the crying game in the theater. So seeing that, that moment, oh, that is the crying game. man, um, that is not aged well. I saw it for the first time in the last five eighty-five, eighty-six. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm not going to tell you. Well, but <coughs> that's a different. I didn't kind of know horror. the thing that was going to happen. Actually, <laughs> that's a different kind of horror for some people. Like, All right, I'm going to look at PDF. I'm going <laughs> to stop the recording now.